All right. Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. For anyone who missed the last hour, either here or for anyone who missed the last hour or just tuning in now, but they didn't hear the last hour, I would please beg you, implore you, challenge you to go back and listen to the last episode. I will make sure I, or last sermon, I will upload it to Church One and Sermons 2.0 as soon as I get home. It's already on all the other podcasting apps. Um, it, it goes out five, about three minutes after we're done. But it's one of those situations where um, we, the more time we spend in Jeremiah 13, the more we see, the more we see, the more we discuss, and we just got to some absolutely critical points in Jeremiah 13 that I, I really, really, really want everyone to go back and listen to. I rarely say that, but please, please, please go back and listen to it. The, that would be Jeremiah chapter, let me find it, part, Jeremiah th- uh, part 33, I believe, yes. Jeremiah uh, part 33 is the one I need everyone to go back and listen to so that everyone will be caught up and understand those concepts because they're so very important, all right? And I don't have time to go back and try to even get into it because if I even try to get into it, then we're never going to finish anything. What we're supposed to be doing right now is starting Jeremiah chapter 14, but that did not happen, all right? When we get to Jeremiah 14, if we can get there tonight, we're going to try to, we're going to break Jeremiah 14, 15, 16, and 17 really down like they're four separate sermons and we're just going to basically try to figure out what the main gist of each sermon is, hopefully, um, which would be great if we could kind of summarize them all. Then that could put us at 18 on Wednesday, which would be a massive jump. But what do you think the chances are of that happening? Okay, good. Someone was a good liar. Bobby's a good liar. And he's like, good, that we can do it. But the reality is probably not because why? As soon as we do what? start looking at anything in the chapter, we're going to find ourselves with a million questions and a million difficulties, but we will see. I can't worry about it. I know we're supposed to be done by the end of August with Jeremiah and Lamentations, and that's not happening, okay? But we're going to do our, we're going to do our very best, our very best, our very best. And then when we move into, we leave summer and move into the fall, there's, there's um, a book dealing with 30 scriptures, 30 individual scriptures, and how everyone misses the point of these 30 scriptures. I would look at, like to look at that. I would like to also start a series on basic theology using the, the uh, book that I got from Sarah, uh, Charles Ryrie's uh, Systematic Theology, which I think could be a lot of fun. Now, that would probably be a series that would last the rest of our lives. Okay, we would all die before we finish it, but... Maybe, you know, if you're going out teaching systematic theology, I guess that's the way to go out, right? Okay. So we like to do that. So, yeah, as soon as I got the book, I'm like, I'm in trouble here, okay, because uh, that would be good. And then there's a, uh, uh, there's a million other things I would like to cover, but we will see. We will see. We will see. We need like 18 church services a week, and then we still wouldn't have time. So we'll, I always have to try to figure out which thing I move directly to the podcast alone and which thing I do here. And I'm trying to keep the two separate to some level, but it's always hard because I'll think I'll just do it here, and then I'm like, well, I can't make up the ground that I want to. But all right, well, we'll see. I'll see. I'm always trying to figure that out, right? Because if I do things on the podcast, then and, and then I bring them back here, then the assumption is, I have a tendency, then the assumption is that you're listening to the podcast, so when I stand up here and I just say, all right, I, everyone looks at me and goes, oh, I know exactly where we are. But if you don't listen, and then I come, then you see the conflict that that creates, right? So, uh, 
trying to figure it out. The, the key is we just have too much to cover, and, and, and it, that, that's, that's going to be uh, the story of my life, right? When, I'm, when I, Pastors talk about burnout. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. I, I, I don't understand what's wrong. Because I could be, I could be 90 on my deathbed and still go like, there's about a million things I did not. Bring me a microphone. Bring me a microphone. Forget the IV. Forget the medication. I got to do one more podcast episode, right? Because it's crazy. Like I was looking at yesterday, just on the Sermons 2.0 app and the Church One app. Just those two apps, right? That does not count Spreaker, Right? Just those two apps, and we have not been on those apps that long. We've already done well over 1,000 hours of broadcasting. Just on those two. And I still am like, we've got too much to cover. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I don't know how other pastors just like, I'll show up Sunday and preach a sermon and that's it. How is that possible? I don't even know how that's possible. I'd be like, I'd be in a, I'd be in a, padded room. I'd lose it. I'd be like, what's the point? Show up once and preach or maybe, or or I'll hear pastors like, man, I can do Sunday morning, but I can't do Sunday night. Like, what do you mean you can't? Like, does that make any sense? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, they're like, it's just, it's too much. What do you mean it's too much? I need like, could we do Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday late afternoon, Sunday early evening, Sunday late evening, and then maybe come back to church midnight? Oh, and then that just gets us ready. That's a warm-up for Monday, right? Okay, so I don't know. All right, but Jeremiah 13. Everybody ready? Here we go. We got to go quick. We got to finish this chapter. If we don't finish this chapter, it's all your fault, all right? Here we go. This is the outline we've given it. Remember, Jeremiah 13 is, a, is a, the reason we're spending so much time with it. Because I believe the change, I always look for textual clues, right? And when you find, like, you're reading along and all of a sudden you're like, what's going on in this chapter? This seems very different in some ways than the other chapters. Then I have a tendency to say, let's slow down, right? Now, I always have a tendency to say that. But in this case, because this chapter is a chapter of object lessons. So we outlined it basically trying to point out the objects that are being used to teach a lesson. The first one is Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. It's the garment. Jeremiah 13, 12 through 14 are the bottles, the filled bottles, if you want to go that way. Jeremiah 13, 15 through 16 is the stumbling travelers. Jeremiah 13, 17 through 20 is the flock. Jeremiah 13, 21 is a woman in labor. Jeremiah 13, verse 22 are the skirts. Jeremiah 13, verse 23 is the Ethiopian and the leopard. Verse 24 to 25 is the chaff. And 26 to 27, we had to come up with something. We were going with the idea of nudity, but we may change it if we can ever get to 26 and 27. At this point, it may be impossible. All right, but we're trying our best, okay? We are trying our best. Now, oh, there's so much I want to go back and cover from the last hour, but I cannot. So please go back and listen, all right? We stopped the last hour really looking at the stumbling travelers. We're going to go back to verse 12, try to put it back into context, and see what we can find. There's so much I want to talk about, but we cannot. All right, here we go. 13:12. Here we go. Therefore, thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? And remember, there's much, I didn't think there was a lot of debate, but there seems to be debate in how to understand it. 
He says every bottle is going to be filled. When you think of a bottle, don't think of a glass bottle, probably like a wine skin, some kind of container, right? And the people are like, well, of course they're all going to be filled. Some people interpret that, that they're just being like a sarcastic teenager. They're like, it's a bottle. That's what happens to bottles. They get filled. Why are you being so stupid? It's almost like a, 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 it's almost like a biblical version of, duh, right? That, that, but others are like, no, 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 they're not, they're not like, duh. They're like, well, of course the bottles are going to be filled because that represents God's blessing, God's provision, and we are Israel. He promised us blessing. So, of course, it was going to be, all right? Now, you can, you can go however you want it, but they are going to be filled, but they may be shocked what they're going to be filled with, right? Because 13, 12, then thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land so that the bottles represent the inhabitants of the land. Everybody get that? All right. And they're going to be filled with drunkenness. Right? And I will dash them one against the another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but destroy them. They're going to be filled with drunkenness. Now, we, 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 we can debate here exactly what the drunkenness represents. Does the drunkenness just represent judgment? Like, hey, you're going to be, you're going to be punished because of judgment or or because of God's wrath, he's going to pour out his judgment on them. And it's just a descriptive way of saying you're going to be judged and that judgment is going to be carried off to Babylon. Or is he saying, I'm going to judge you, but basically causing you to be figuratively so drunk that you cannot see, discern truth, you cannot understand God, and you're going to be stumbling and crashing into one another and fighting one another, and you're going to be all these problems. Now, you can go either way, but we do know this. They're going to be filled with something that's going to bring judgment upon them. Okay? Has everybody got that? All right. And we know, all, and we talked in the last hour, all the problems and questions that raises. Okay? Now, what happens in the next? So those are the bottles, right? Those are the bottles. Okay? Those are the bottles. All right? Next. What happens then? Verse 15. Hear ye and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. In the last hour, I told everyone to write down the word pride and idolatry and set it to the side. We haven't been able to get back to it, but there's the pride. Hey, don't be proud. Now, I think the fact that he mentions pride here explains to me what they meant about the, every bottle's going to be filled. They're prideful because they think we're God's children. Of course, everything's going to be filled. And he says, do not be proud. Give glory to the Lord your God Be he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon dark mountains and while you look for light he turn it into shadows of death and make it gross darkness so they're told to do something give God glory and if you don't give God glory he's going to basically turn out the lights and you're going to be stumbling travelers now the problem is the key is they have to do something they have to give God glory we talked about this in the last hour they can never truly give God glory because of their sin so this is law they're going to fall short of it. And well, they're going to be stumbling travelers. And in reality, guess what? Israel's still stumbling travelers because they're still blind. We read that all the way in the book of Romans. Blindness has come upon Israel. They're still in darkness, right? Until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. All right? Okay, so. But if you will not hear, but if you will not hear it, 
My soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Now, we believe, verse 17, we had a little bit of kind of back and forth, I think, on Wednesday. Jeremiah, I believe, is speaking in 17. He's going to be the one weeping, and he's weeping because God's flock is going to be carried away captive. All right? And the flock, now we have the idea. So we went from the stumbling traveler to the flock, right? The flock is going to be carried away, away to being captive. In other words, think of a flock of sheep, flock of animals. Someone's going to come along and carry them away to another place, another, another pen, another field, right? And they're going to be captive. Say unto the king and to the queen, Humble yourselves, sit down, for your principality shall come down, even the crown of your glory. Now, let's stop right here. Who is the king and the queen possibly being spoken of in Jeremiah 13, 18? Does anybody know? You can use study Bible. You can ask a friend. You can phone. You can email. You can text. Whoever gets it right will win nothing. I don't know. Who's the king and the queen? Do, Do we have names here? Look at 2 Kings, I believe, 24. I believe it's 2 Kings 24. And look at, I think it's 8 through 20, and see if you can identify with me the, the king and the queen. I, I bet you the king's name starts with a J. Okay, do we think it's Josiah? And I believe the queen's name starts with an N. But I could be wrong on both. Let's see who can figure this out. I know you're saying it's a sermon. You're supposed to give me the answer, but who wants to go to a church where you just listen to someone, right? Right, exactly. Thank you. I mean, obviously, most people do, but okay. But, oh, is it Jehoiakim? Jehoiachin. Okay, there we go, right? Remember, we have, remember, there's two that are very similar? Okay. I said uh, between verse 8 and 20. So Jehoi, Jehoi Chin, right? Okay. Verse 8. All right, so we have Jehoi Chin. Nahushta, right? Am I correct? She's considered the queen mother, I believe. All right, so it seems, according to some, that Jeremiah spoke to King Jehoi Chin and Nahushta, the queen mother. And admonish them to do what in Jeremiah 13? What does he admonishes them to do? To humble themselves. To humble themselves, right? Okay. Say unto the king and to the queen, humble yourselves, sit down, for your principality shall come down, even the crown of your glory. This is much more, again, about humbling yourselves, humbling yourselves, humbling yourselves, humbling yourselves, humbling yourselves, humbling yourselves, all right? And, and last night I gave everyone an uh, assignment on, on pride to do. I'm not going to get into that now, but man, I, I want to, I, that's why I told you to write down idolatry and pride in the first hour. I want to go to that right now, but we can't. We got to press on, all right? Okay? So we got the flock going into captivity, right? 
And he tells them to, to basically humble themselves. Look at verse 19. These cities of the soul shall be uh, shut up. None shall be opened them. Judah shall be carried away captive. All of it, it shall be wholly carried away captive. Lift up your eyes and behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given thee? Thy beautiful flock. In other words, people are going to come and it's almost like he's using it in a figurative way and going to say what? Where's the flock? Where are they and where are they? Carried away captive. Just like the garment was carried away, right? Just like, a, so the flock is going to be carried away. So far, so good. So there's the flock. So we're doing good. All right. Now, what do we have after the flock? We have a woman in labor, right? What wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains, and as a chief over, th- over thee shall not sorrow take thee as a woman in travail. Right? Now, let me just read a little bit here from a commentary just to try to expedite this because we have a, a specific place we're trying to get to, right? So, remember our outline. So far, so good, right? We got the garment, 13, 1 through 11. We got the bottles, 12 through 14. We got the stumbling uh, traveler, 15 through 16. We have the flock, 17 through 20. Now we have the woman in labor in verse 21, right? And all of those, we know what represents what, yes? Okay, now, we got to figure out the woman in travail. Now, this is according to one commentary. Here we go. The woman in travail is a familiar biblical image of suffering, and it is usually associated with judgment. We can see this in a number of passages. It would be wonderful to take the time to go through all of them. A lot of them are in Jeremiah, right? I could give them all out that we could try to write it all down, but we we won't do that right now. Maybe we'll do that for a today's focus or for a special episode of the Bible study exercise. We'll find a time, but not right now. The message of the verse is, now this is how they summarize the message of the verse. Here we go. The people you sought as allies will come and be your masters. Then what will you say? You will be so gripped with pain that you won't be able to say anything. Had they looked to Jehovah as their ally, he wouldn't have failed them, but they trusted Babylon, and Babylon turned out to be their enemy. Now, let's read the verse again and see if we can see that, all right? I'm going to read it from the King James, and then we can maybe read it from some other translations, all right? We're in verse 21, correct? What will thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains and as chief over thee shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail. Let's read that from the NIV. Yes. Uh, What will you say when the Lord sets over you those you cultivated as your special allies? There you go. Hey, those people you sought, the help you looked for, those other people you looked for, yeah, guess what? They're going to turn on you. And you're going to be like a woman in labor. You're going to be like a woman in pain. And, and I just remember back then, when women had babies, they did not have, They didn't have any drugs, okay? There was nothing. They had to endure the full pain, right? 
and I'm, I'm, I mean, I have no way of knowing because I wouldn't want to know, but I, 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 I hear that it's painful, right? Okay, so that, that's, that's a very vivid image of, hey, hey, you turn to this, and this is what happens. This is what, this is what happens. This is what you get, all right? Does that make sense? There's the woman in travail. Now, what do we have next after the woman in travail? Now we have the skirts in verse 22. And if thou say in thine heart, wherefore come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy hills made bare. Now it may seem a little weird to understand. What is he seemingly trying to to say here? Let's read it from the NIV. How do they take care of this verse? All right. In other words, you're going to be like, why is this happening to me? What is happening to me? Why are these people who we thought are friends, now why are we suffering? Well, you're going to end up, it's happening because your sins and what's going to happen to you. Well, basically, he's kind of describing that their skirts or their clothing, which would have at that time gone you know, way down, to, like they couldn't even show their ankle, right? It's basically going to be pulled up. Wall over their face, and you're going to be exposed, and you're going to be mistreated. You're going to be humiliated. You're going to be exposed. You're going to be abused. Not not a not a pretty picture. And why is this happening? Because of their sins. All right. So far, so good. Now that gets us all the way down to what. Ethiopian and the leopard. And verse 23 is where the wheels come completely off this entire discussion. And I have no clue what to do with this because this is more troubling than anything I can even comprehend at this point. All right. Everybody ready? All right. I know we're almost close. Even if we don't finish the rest, all I care about is this verse. All right. And we're, it's not quite, it's not quite 12 yet. I don't think I'm going too far from the computer and going to lose connection. All right. 15 till. All right. I know we got the chaff and I know we got the nudity thing to figure out at the end, right? But this is where any good Bible student should just have a complete emotional mental breakdown. All right. We have spent 12 chapters, right? 12 and a half chapters, right? 12, you know, because we were halfway through 13, right? So 13 and a half, however you want to look at it, right? We've spent a a good amount of time over and over and over. What have we seen in the book of Jeremiah? It's been repeated over and over and over and over. Their failure, their failure, their failure, their failure. And it seems over and over that they are told, do something, do something, do something. Stop doing this, do this, glorify me. Don't do this. You would refuse. Listen to me. And we would say it's been law, 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 right? Over and over and over. And we've already realized in the last hour that there were four things that Israel was kind of supposedly created for. They never pulled off and they never did. And then we connected that to the new covenant where God's going to have to do it for them. But after reading all of this, this next section should make no sense to anyone. Because what does the verse say? Here we go. 
He asked a question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Now, let's just stop right here. This is a rhetorical question, is it not? And what's the answer? Absolutely not. Now, this is not being said in a negative way. It's not saying anything bad about Ethiopians or people of black skin. It's not saying anything like that. It's not anything in a negative way. Anyone who tries to do that is missing the whole point, right? He's just picking someone with dark skin, which would have been the Ethiopians would have been known for that, right? And simply saying, can they change it? And the answer is no. He could have chosen anyone of any kind, right? No one can change the color of their skin, right? Or can we say, can Israel change themselves? No. Can Judah change themselves? No. Now, immediately you're like, well, wait a minute. Then why do you keep telling them to do things? They're like any, any good person reading their Bible at this point should be like, whoa, this makes no sense. This would be like you spending 12 months griping at your kids, telling them, do this, do this, change this, do this, do this, change this. And then after 12 months, you call all the kids in the room and go, can an Ethiopian change his skin? No. And you can't change yourself either. And the kids would be like, then why have you been griping at me for 12 months? Would you not be a little confused? I'm a little confused by this. But let's see. Let's make sure that we understand. Right? So we have the Ethiopian. It's a, it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. Can the leopard, his spots, can a leopard change his spots? No, right? If you don't believe me, you know, go down to the zoo today. Everybody can take a field trip to the Abilene Zoo. Is there a leopard there? I can't remember. I know, I think there's a leopard there. I think so. Okay, there's something there. Fine, just talk to the animals and ask them if they can change anything, right? Okay, can they? No. In fact, they're going to be looking at you. Why are you here? You say, I was sent by my pastor to have a field trip, right? Okay, the point is they can't change. Now, what does he do with those two rhetorical... The rhetorical questions demand what kind of an answer? No. Now, what does he do with that negative answer? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to evil. And that seems to be another rhetorical question. And the answer is no. How does the NIV put it? Neither can you do good who is accustomed to do evil. Wow. Wow. What a weird place for this to be told to them. Right? I mean, 13 chapters in. You can't do anything. What, like... How do we even try to process this in our minds, right? 
How does this even begin to, I don't even know what you do with this, right? You know, pastors have tried all kinds of things. Well, this is not about man's inability. It's just saying that basically you're so used to doing bad that now you can't do good. If you wouldn't have gotten so used to doing bad, you could have done good. But if we read the entire history of Israel, obviously, when did they ever have a history of doing good? Because anytime they did good, it only lasted, I don't know, five minutes? Right? Only a couple of minutes? I mean, all they ever did? I mean, we, look, there's no way to get around it. The entire story of Israel is failure, 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 failure. So then what some people do is like, okay, you're right. They can't change it. But God can. This is where, this is where preachers come in, right? So then they really kind of forget about Israel and they talk about you. And they say, can you change yourself? And everybody in the church says, no, but God can change you. And everybody says, amen. And they point that change as being what kind of change? A practical change that impacts your life, right? And so then the preachers will create an entire sermon that goes something like this. You used to be the Ethiopian who could not change his skin. You used to be a leopard who can't change his spot. But God has changed your skin. God has changed your spot. So now you're different. You've been changed. You've been transformed. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. And everybody sits in the pew and says, Amen. Some may even do this. Yay! And they may stand up and wave their Bible. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to have people who do that, but, but they get all excited. And everybody's like, yay! And then everybody gets in the car, and then five minutes down the road, what are we having for lunch? I don't know. Why are you asking me why you're having for lunch? You look, stop grabbing at me. Kids, shut up! Oh, that never happens? Nobody can catch on going, wait a minute, I just thought we were told we were transformed. We were changed. How come we acting like in our car, we're probably doing the same thing the other family who's not saved doing in their car. We're arguing, we're bickering, we're fighting. The kids are fighting with one another. You're fighting with them. You're saying things to them that you shouldn't say. They're saying things to you. And then you're getting, just get me home and find a divorce lawyer now. Oh, and some food. I need you to tell me what I'm hungry for. That's why why I'm not supposed to figure it out. Now, the question is, what's the answer then? Now, what we have shown, I think I keep trying to show over and over and over, is what the law demands. God provides, but he provides it by an imputed, not an infused. And that's where everyone disagrees with us. Historically, we supposedly believe that. Now, if you say that, what will you be accused of? You'll be accused of being an antinomian. The only problem is, what do I have? I have got... This is where I get so frustrated debating with people on this. Because what is there to debate? We have 2,000 years of church history that has shown that the church is filled with the same sins that are in the world. How bad was the church of Corinth? 
There were stains going on in the church that was not even named among the Gentiles. Everyone in our culture wants to talk about, oh, the world, the world, the world. Nobody wants to talk, and we will point out that those people are coming for our children. How about how, how safe is a kid inside a church considering how many children? Just look up the statistics. How many children have been sexually molested and abused inside churches? Not just Catholic. Independent Baptist? Southern Baptist? Assemblies of God? Church camps? Those are only the ones we know about. Now, you mentioned that Christians get mad at you. And so, what's our go-to answer? They weren't saved. That's our go-to Our go-to answer is always, they're not saved, they're not saved, they're not saved, they're not saved, they're not. I'm so tired of that being our answer. We don't let anybody else do that. If Muslims drive a, a plane, fly a plane into a building, it's all Muslims. But if a Christian does something, we're like, oh, well, you know, no, not a Christian, not a Christian, not a Christian. That, that, why is that our, like, we, we think it's just get out of free jail card. But if, if you're honest with yourself, why do you call yourself a Christian? Because if I compare your life to God's law, you don't even deserve to be called a Christian. But no, no, no. Then we only reduce it to the big sins. Right? The big sins. Every other sin is okay. Right? But according to Jesus, no, even if you've committed it in your you're guilty of it. But we don't really believe that. But is it not absolutely just dumbfounding to you that this is here? Like, how do you even process it? Now, my study Bible, of course, they try to, they try to kind of minimize this, right? Uh, th- these questions anticipate a negative answer. It was unlikely that Judah would change with, after centuries of acting in such an evil way. What do you mean it was unlikely that they would change? The, the text is, does not say, is it likely? The text uh, offers questions that imply what? No, I got one commentary. Guess what they do with those verses? They don't even acknowledge that they exist. They cover every other verse in the chapter. This one says this. Uh, The Ethiopian and the leopard were reminders that Judah's sin was deeper than the skin and could not easily be removed by some superficial means. Now, again, what does it mean could not easily be removed? (laughs) It can't be. This is so ridiculous. I don't understand our problems sometimes. Like, when you, get it, when you get something that's so clear, and as Christians, we can't even agree on it. Well, I mean, it can be with extreme. What are you talking about? Okay, it cannot. Disobedience was such a habit with the people that it was part of their very nature. It did, listen, what did their disobedience happen out of habit, and did, it, did disobedience become a part of their nature because of their habit? Or was disobedience their habit because it was a part of their nature? See, let's, I want to throw this book halfway across the room, but I don't want to hit Janice in the head, okay? All right, but I, I do, I just get furious at that. That is a complete obliteration of biblical theology and a book written by someone who's well-respected in the world of Christianity. And I just want to, and I don't even want to burn books, but I'm about ready to go to the parking lot and burn this one. 
It did not become a part of their nature out of habit. You did not become a sinner in your nature because your habit was sin. Because the question would be, well, where did the habit originate from in the first place? It originated because it was already in you. Man, we Christians can't bring ourselves to accept that fact. And why can we not bring ourselves to accept that fact? Because we believe it creates an image of a powerless Christianity where we're going to be sinners. And we cannot tolerate that for two seconds. We got to have power. We got to be different than the world. We can do it. And we've been saying that for 2,000 years, and all we continue to do is sin. Your habitual sin did not make it, did, did not lead to sin becoming your nature. Your nature led to your habitual sin, and that nature does not change until glorification. And the evangelical church refuses to acknowledge that. Now, I don't, I don't say that in a way saying that I'm better because I wouldn't accept it either. I wanted to believe that I could, I could, I could, I could, I could, I could, I could. Oh, it's absolutely. That we can do it, 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 but we cannot. Right, it's just built into us. Enough disobedience and we're like, and, and, and don't we will do this all the time. So a Christian commits a certain kind of sin and we will be like, how could they? You don't know the answer to that? The same, now I know this is shocking, the same nature that was in Hitler is in you. The same nature that's in the worst criminal in prison is inside of you. And as a result of that nature, what is our natural bent and our natural way of, of operating? In a sinful way. We go, eat, that's what we do. And we cannot change it. We cannot change it. We cannot change it. This goes on to say, unless broken and slaughtered because of sin, uh, unless broken and slaughtered because of sin too deep to be removed, those are the sad consequences of pride and disobedience. Once again, it's not the sad consequences of pride and disobedience. What, the pride and disobedience is a result of what? The nature. It's, it's, they, we get it so wrong. They're like, oh, these are the reasons. No, it, the, everything flows from the nature. We say it all the time. You do not become a sinner by sinning. You sin because you are a sinner. And ladies and gentlemen, you cannot change your skin. You cannot change 
your spies. Nothing will ever change that. So here's the issue. The gospel. Because everyone says the answer to this problem is the gospel. Now, which answer does the gospel provide? Does the gospel provide Bobby? Here's Bobby. He can't change his skin. He can't change his spots. And he's a sinner by nature. All right? Bobby, stop doing it. Bobby, stop. Right? Now, we know giving him law is not going to fix it. Right? We know that. Because the law is only supposed to expose his skin, expose the spots. And, it, and, and we know that law will only do what to someone who's a sinner by nature? Provokes rebellion. Now, I know that does not go with our mind, right? Because Christians think that how should we fix the culture? We think that if we take the law of God and put it on the wall or put it on book covers, that all of a sudden it's going to fix everything. It's not going to fix everything because it's never designed to fix. It's only designed to expose and condemn. And by nature, it will provoke it. I don't understand Christians' weird way of trying to fix society. It's so theologically just wrong, right? A lot of people get mad at me because they think, well, you need to think more like I do politically. Our disagreement isn't politically. Our disagreement is theological. Okay, that's our disagreement, right? Don't get mad at me because I don't agree with your politics. I don't agree with your theology because you're looking to politics to do something that it can't fix, and everybody gets so mad at me about that. I, I, I don't, I, but then nobody really will ever try to talk to me to understand our disagreement is theological. But you tell me you agree with my theology, so why are we having a disagreement? I don't know, but okay. Because you don't agree with my theology. Well, then go find a semi-Pelagian free will church, okay? And, and be a Christian nationalist and get a couple of American flags and sing God Bless America and Lee Greenwood and whatever you want to do. Pop, you get some fireworks, whatever you want to do. Some apple pie, baseball, whatever. But that we're not on the same page. We're not even anywhere near the same page. So all right, Bobby, has got, he's got a problem. Law's not going to fix it. So then everyone says, we know what will fix Bobby. What will fix Bobby? The gospel. And we think the gospel fixes it in what way? That it's going to change Bobby. So it's going to change his skin, change his spots. And now Bobby will do what? He's going to do right. Is that the gospel? I say it's not. And I know immediately people are already turning us off and going heretic, heretic, heretic. The gospel is designed to say, Bobby, you cannot be changed because you are a sinner and your spots, and your, it cannot be changed. So I'm going to save you by giving you a Alien, I'm going to use Luther's words, an alien righteousness and everything the law demands, I did it. And I'm going to give what I did, I'm going to accredit it to you. Accredit it, please. Everyone hear that word? Accredit. That doesn't mean Bobby's going to do it. It's been done for him. So now in Christ, he's a new creature. And that's what the text even says, in Christ. He's a new creature. The old is gone and everything is new. So now before God, his skin has been changed. His spots have been changed. But in practice, 
He's still messed up and he will be until glorification because what happens in glorification that's so important? The new body. And that new body is missing what? The old nature. And until the old nature is present, then your skin hasn't changed and your spots haven't changed. You may put something over the skin. You may cover up your spots and we cover that up with religion. We cover that up with church. We cover that up with morality. But Bobby is still the same person. And don't say, that's insane. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. The things I want to do, the things I don't want to do, with my mind, the law of God, flesh, law of sin. Nobody ever quotes that in Romans 7, do they? So in a roundabout way, what is Jeremiah kind of, what is this kind of telling the people of Judah and Israel? You cannot be helped. And look what it says in verse 24. Therefore, I will scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the winds of the wilderness. This gets us to the chaff, right? This is thy lot, the portion of thy measure for me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. They're going to be driven away. And guess what? They're going to continue to be chaff until when? We talked about it in the last hour, until God institutes the new covenant. And then guess what? God will do everything before them, on the behalf of them. He will do everything. Now you could say, well, why wouldn't he do it then? I don't know why he wouldn't do it then. Well, the only explanation we're given is he, he doesn't do it for them so that they'll be blind until we get to come in. And then after we're done, he then will save all of Israel, right? And then there will be all of these things. But, he, but he's going to do it for them. Never go, they're going to do it themselves. And, we're not, and guess what? Guess what God's going to have? A nation who is a trophy of his grace because they can never do it. And a church that is a trophy of his grace for they can never do it. Now, I know some will lose their minds because you're saying you're separating them. I understand in one sense we're one, right? Because all believers would be considered part of the church. But Israel has a separate as far as a nation because there are specific promises to them that are not for the church, right? And we know God has to give them those promises, because his, as it says in the book of Romans, his calling and gifts are without repentance. And he's going to give them those promises based on grace, not works. Does that make sense? Right? And then this gives us to the last one, last two verses. Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, and thy shame may appear. Now, once again, this is the idea. We got the skirts. We could connect it to the skirts, but we're using this necessary to refer more to nudity because what is he going to do with the skirts? Pull them up over their face. So they're going to be completely exposed. And what does he say? I've seen that in adulteries. What, when it says adulteries, what, what are those adulteries? 
Idolatry, idolatry. Remember, okay, I want to make sure everyone understands this, right? We talk about physical adultery. Yes? Some refer to mental adultery. Some refer to emotional adultery, which is not really outlined in the scriptures, really. I don't think we really see that, but everyone will talk about emotional adultery, right? And then there is spiritual adultery. You may never have committed mental adultery. You may have never had lust for anyone, and if congratulations if you pulled that off. That's great, right? You may never have committed physical adultery. You may never committed emotional adultery, but I absolutely guarantee you have committed spiritual adultery. And which adultery never gets punished for church discipline? Spiritual adultery. Ever. It's not even considered an issue. Israel gets in more trouble for which kind of adultery? Spiritual. Why is it called spiritual adultery? Because they are supposed to be faithful to God, but they're cheating on God by going after other gods. And how can we be guilty of spiritual adultery? Anything that we go after other than God. That can be good things. It could be your family. It could be your career. It could be education. Nobody gets in trouble for that. For a pastor, guess what spiritual adultery could be for a pastor? Ministry. Because ministry becomes what you're really, you're not focused on God, ministry, and you're focused on numbers and growing the church and this and managing the people and being a CEO and making everyone love you and their praise. And, and it can, even ministry can become the very idol. You're, you're cheating on God with your ministry. I know that's hard to comprehend, but it's easy to do so, right? It's easy. You may not understand it, but it's easy to do so. Anything can be. What does he go on to say? And thy, the next word in the King James, names. Well, how does the NIV translates names? Lustful what? Okay, lustful names. In other words, the idea here is their lust, right? The lewdness of thy whoredoms and thine abominations on the hills. Now, when it says the abominations on the hills and the fields, meaning it's their false worship, right? That, that's what he's going after. I mean, I, hopefully you understand that. Okay, correct? All right. It says, uh, lustful names and whoredom. These refer to the people's practice out in the open as they went after sex with animalistic passion and the of Canaanite God. Now, they're saying it could be sex involved, but it's sex because they're using it in their false worship. So it's still spiritual adultery. Physical adultery may be connected with it, but okay. All right. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, will thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? You see that last part? All right. How does the NIV translate that last part? How long will you be unclean? How long will you be unclean? Now we'll end with this. That same question, 
Well, first let's answer it. How long will they be unclean? They will forever be unclean practically. Our only hope of, and the same is true of them, the same is true of us. We will always be unclean when we take our works and compare them to God's law. Our, the only way we never, the only way we will ever be clean is in because of an imputed righteousness and our sins being forgiven. They cannot change. Now, I know that's, that should raise some serious philosophical problems because that bothers me. Does it not bother you? Well, if they can't change, God, then why are you going to let them be destroyed and killed? I cannot answer that question. Can, any, can we change? No. Well, then why should anyone be judged? I can't answer that question. But I do know this. I can't. He did. And by faith, I am declared to be clean, holy, and righteous, even though I am not. I'm not given the ability to do it. I'm declared to be something I will never be. And I will never be clean practically. And anyone who thinks, and whenever, and whenever you say that to people, they'll say, well, the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And you can say, amen. And they say, oh, so you, you do it? Yeah, in Christ. And when you go through 1 John, it says, if you don't do this, and you don't do this, and you don't do this, you don't do this, and you can say, I agree. I have to do all of those things. But someone did it for me. And immediately someone will be like, oh, you're not an antinomian, you're teaching easy believism. I know I'm just being realistic because if I have to do those things in order to be saved, anyone who's even remotely honest with themselves would say, I am unclean and I cannot change my skin and I cannot change my spots. Where can I find hope? And those words, it is finished. And if he finishes it, I don't need to add to it. I need to rest in it by faith. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, I hope that we will spend much time meditating on all the truths we found in Jeremiah chapter 13. There are many. We barely scratched the surface, but I hope we'll give these two hours of teaching much thought, and hopefully we'll be ready this evening to move forward and try to get as much out of this book as as we can. Forgive us for all of the times we have failed you with our idolatry, with our pride. And Lord, we cannot change. Our only hope is what you've done for us in Christ. And let us find rest and peace in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.